0: I'd like to have you turn with me to the twelfth chapter of Genesis and we're going to begin a new series of studies on the patriarchs beginning with chapter twelve of this book. as you know our um, our Sunday school classes are coordinated with the Sunday morning service so that we don't have you going in a lot of different directions at once and uh, you'll be studying uh, each Sunday morning in smaller Sunday school classes, the passages that we're teaching on Sunday morning. And hopefully, hopefully you'll get a chance to interact with one another and, and make more specific application of the passage in those groups. So if you're not in a, in a Sunday school elective group, uh, we'd like to encourage you to, to get in one and, and get the materials and get into the passage on your own before you come on Sunday morning. It'll make the Sunday morning study so much more uh, fruitful and helpful for you. Let's begin with chapter 1 of Genesis, and we'll read the first uh, nine verses. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarah, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and he set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. The Canaanites were then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord, Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Now let me uh, take a moment to sketch in some of the historical background of of this passage, because, again, we need to understand these people lived in history. They were real, honest-to-goodness, sure enough, historical personages. And uh, understanding that, I think, helps us to identify with them. If Abram lived today, he'd wear cowboy boots or 3 three piece suits or whatever just like uh, just like we do. He was a historic figure lived in time. And uh, with Abraham, we can begin to pin down specifically what that time was and what what life was like in Abram's time because with Abram we can begin to put dates to things. Prior to Abram, uh, we can't date any of the individuals whose, uh, whose stories appear in Genesis. We simply don't know when Adam lived. We don't know when uh, when Enoch lived, some of the other great heroes in the opening 11 chapters of Genesis. We don't know when they lived. But we know approximately when Abram uh, what Abram's times were. He lived in what archaeologists call the Middle Bronze Period, a period from about 2100 B.C., to 1500 B.C., or about two th- uh, 4,000 years ago. Abram lived in the early part of that period, right around the year 2000. That's a good round number to keep in mind. And we know what things were like during that time because people were literate. They were writing, and there's a vast body of literature that's available to us, so we know what, what Abram's times were like. For one thing, these people were very... Uh, very uh, sophisticated. They had a very complex uh, culture. They were building large buildings and temple complexes, large public buildings and private uh, buildings. Their homes were very spacious. The pyramids had been built for about 500 time, uh, about 500 years when Abram was born. So they were able to accomplish a great deal technologically. They were advanced medically. They had a, a uh, very sophisticated knowledge of astrology I mean of astronomy and um, they they were literate they could read and write uh, they were producing uh, beautiful objects of, of art so they were a very civilized very cultured people now Abraham we don't know much about prior to the time of um, of his story here in Genesis 12 the name Abram or or names that sound very much like Abram occur all over the ancient world in much of their literature. So it was a very common name, much like our name, John Smith. And uh, Abram was just a very ordinary fellow. He was probably a, a caravaneer. He, he traveled from one part of the ancient world to the next and uh, uh, handled goods of various type, trade goods. If he lived today, he would probably be the owner of a fleet of trucks he was a trucker and uh, evidently a very wealthy man so uh, abram lived in a in an urban uh, environment much like uh, our city life today and uh, he was an intelligent man he was an educated man he was a literate man and he lived in a society that had a highly developed technology but we also know that uh, that uh, there was a great deal of uh, of moral uh, depravity in the world at that time. Uh, people were very, uh, very wicked, particularly sexually immoral. They seemed to have no morals at all in this area. Almost anything went. We know that from reading the Old Testament and also from their literature. And alongside their immorality was a, a great spirit of despair. Egyptian literature particularly indicates that people had given up. It was a dark time of, of desperation, and uh, people had no hope. In Egypt, they were asking, where is the shepherd who can lead us out of, of, our, uh, of our circumstances today? So it's in that kind of environment that God calls the man Abram. He calls him from Ur of the Chaldees over in, in Mesopotamia, Down into the land of Canaan, which, as we've seen before, was the crossroads of the world, the area of the world through which everyone had to go if they were going to any other part of the world. And he calls him to be a blessing to the world. Now, I want you to look first uh, at the the call of Abraham, as it's described for us here in verse 2. There are a number of elements in that call. God says, first, I'll make of you, Abram, a great nation— now that's fulfilled today, historically, in the numerical growth of the, uh, of the Jewish nation. Uh, they are indeed a great nation scattered all over the world. They're not only, not only great numerically, they've accomplished a great deal in the world. They've had a, a great impact upon our times. Something like 12% of the uh, Nobel uh, Prize winners have come from the Jewish nation and they are less than 1% of the entire population of the world. So they've had, a, they've had a, a, a significant impact upon their times. They're a great people, as God promised Abraham. Secondly, God says, I'll, I'll bless you. The uh, word bless means to enrich or to make fertile, uh, to make fruitful. God says, I'll make your life fruitful. Uh, I'll enrich you. In various ways and I'll make your name great Uh, one's name in the ancient world was associated with what he was and so what God is saying is I'll make you great you'll be a great man and that was historically fulfilled as we know Abram is a great man in three of the major religions of the world today and everyone knows Abraham they know who he is His greatness came because of his identification with God and the particular purpose that God had in mind for him. His greatness didn't lie in the fact that he was the world's greatest caravaneer, that he had uh, more donkeys than anyone else, that he made more money than anyone else in his profession, or uh, that his uh, his, uh, business uh, multiplied to the point that... uh, he held a monopoly on that on that particular service his greatness lay in the fact that he had a unique call God wanted to do something with Abraham in a spiritual way as we'll see and then we're told that because God would do these things he would be a blessing you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses or takes you lightly I will curse And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So those who took Abram seriously and took his message seriously would be blessed. And those who took him lightly or took his proclamation lightly would be made sterile. They would have no fruit. The word that's translated curse here is the opposite of the word blessing. Their lives would be made sterile. And through you, he says, everyone on the earth will be enriched. Now, there are uh, are a couple of observations that we need to make about this call. The first is that the call mainly has to do with things that God was going to do for him. And I hope you understand that that's, that's what it means to be a Christian. The Christian faith, the, the distinctive of the Christian faith, is not, it doesn't lie in what we do for God. The thing that makes us unusual as Christians is that God wants to do something for us. Most of us as Christians uh, have been told that God wants certain things for us. And if we really serve God, we'll do these things. We'll be involved in, different act, in various activities and we'll we'll serve God with all of our heart, and we'll do things for God. But, you know, God is not at all impressed with what we do for him. What God wants to do is bless us. He wants to do something for us. In the Old Testament story of David, David wanted to build a, a temple for God, and that was a noble ambition. So the prophet Nathan said, David... Do it, and God will be with you. But in, uh, in the night, God appeared to Nathan, and he said, No, no, that's not, uh, it's, I don't want David to do anything for me. I don't want him to build a house for me. I want to build a house for him. God wanted to do something for David. And that's what we need to understand. The important thing is not what we do for God. It's what God does for us and through us for the world and once we understand that then the christian life takes on an entirely different different meaning it takes the strain out of our out of our service and worship yesterday or friday i was uh, up in the mountains looking for a an indian cave that someone told me about and uh, i was scrambling around uh in some of that rim rock up to the uh, on the north side of mayfield and finally located some caves back in there and uh, i had to climb up into one of these caves and as i was sitting on the lip of the cave looking down over the valley i i started to think uh, about what might happen if i fell off and there i was all by myself and suppose i broke my leg or sprained my ankle how in the world would i would i get out and about that time someone in a little plane was flying overhead and I thought, I know what I'd do. I'd go down to this snowfield, and I'd take some rocks and I'd, I'd lay out a little sign, help. And they would know that I was in trouble and they would, they'd get someone to help me. And it struck me as I was thinking about that that that's very often how we think of the Christian life. That we're down here on the earth sort of slugging it out, serving God, doing the hard things that God calls us to do. And God's up there in his airplane, flying around, viewing us. And he's kind of available if we're in trouble. And if we get desperate enough, if we cannot get out of the fix that we're in, then what we have to do is send up a message and then God somehow will get help to us. That's our concept of the Christian life. But that's contrary to what Scripture tells us. The Lord Jesus is not up there. He's not even alongside. He's here. He indwells us. He's the source of power in our life. And God wants to fill us and flood us and enrich our lives and provide everything that we need. And once we understand that, the Christian life gets exciting. It's not what I do for him that counts. It's what he's already done for me. I just need to lay hold of what he's done and receive it and begin to act on that basis. And then you see we're not intimidated by the things that God calls us to do because God is not at all afraid to call us to do some, some extraordinary things. God takes a very ordinary man, Abram, and he, and he removes him from one setting where he was very comfortable and successful and he takes him to another part of the world where things are tough to Canaan the sort of the moral uh the the bottom of the rung morally and he puts him there and gives him a message and he and he tells him I want you to bless the whole world and and that's impossible But you see, it's only done because it it can only be done because God has already done it. He's already promised everything that we need. As someone said, the world has yet to see what God can do through someone who understands that principle. I read just this past week of a a priest in Heliopolis, Egypt, a Muslim stronghold, as most of you know, priest in the Egyptian, uh, the Ethiopian Coptic Church, who was an evangelical believer in the word, in the Lord, And, and working in a place that traditionally has been considered impossible because working among Muslims is very difficult. But that's where God called him. And so he began to teach the scriptures in Heliopolis. And I understand last year, at the end of one year, over a thousand people were gathering to hear him teach the scriptures. And you see, God does that sort of thing to us. He puts us in impossible situations. He puts us in offices where people don't care about God and in neighborhoods where they're not interested in spiritual things. And he says, I want you to bless that, that environment bring enrichment to the people there but it can only be done if we understand that he's the source of power he's already given us everything that we need he will make our name great he will bless us and enrich us it's our responsibility to lay hold of what he's already done so God called Abram to Canaan and he went verse 4 so Abram left As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. That's the time when most of us pick up our Social Security check. But at 75, Abram began his life work. So you're never too old to get involved in what God is doing in the world, or too young, or too ill-equipped. All God wants is people that are available, who will leave. That's all Abram did. He uprooted himself from one secure environment, and he put himself into another environment. He believed that God would enrich his life, and he began to enrich others. I know a man. Uh, I was reading the alumni uh, letter from uh, a school I attended, and uh, there was a story of a man there who... Uh, Who graduated in the first class in that school he's now 84 when he was 80 years of age he began to teach through the scriptures and put it on videotape so it could be sent out to areas that uh, don't have access to biblical teaching he put 262 messages on tape on videotape at 80 years of age he's 84 now he just completed it last year So you're never too old, or you're never too young. It doesn't matter. God just wants you to be available, and he'll put you to his intended purpose. So Abram left, and uh, he traveled over to Haran first, and then to Shechem in verse 6, as far as the site of the great tree of Morah. The Canaanites used to worship under oak trees, terebinths they were called. These uh, large ancient live oak trees that they considered sacred. That's where they worshiped. That's where their temples were. Most of them were open-air temples. And Abram brought his tent right in alongside the temple and he pitched it right there and he began to make proclamation. He began to call upon the name of the Lord right adjacent to a Canaanite temple. Archaeologists digging digging at Shechem have found a series of temples built on that very spot. Probably around the configuration of the temple indicates that it was built right around that tree. So it was there for years and years. It was a sacred site for the Canaanites and that's where Abram put his little tent, put it right there by the temple, built his little altar out of rocks, worshipped the Lord, lived among the Canaanites. And he traveled south, down to Bethel, also a Canaanite sanctuary, where Bethel means the house of God. El was the high god of the Canaanites. They gave it that name. Jacob later renamed it for the god of Israel, but it was known as Bethel. In fact, it's called Bethel in their literature long before Abraham ever got there. And then on down into the Negev in the south. God called Abram from Ur over here in Mesopotamia and he traveled up through the Fertile Crescent up here to Haran and he was there for a while until his father died and then down into the land of Canaan which is this strip of land here. Here's Shechem. Here's this little spot right here would be Bethel, Hebron, and the Negev. Beersheba was one of the cities in the Negev. And uh, you can see he's traveling in a straight north-south direction, traveling to the south. There are two main caravan routes through the land of Canaan. There's one over here along the coast that was called the Via Maris, which was the way along the sea. And then there was a ridge route that ran right along the top of the Judean hills. It was the major north-south route through the land of Canaan. All the caravans had to go right through there if they were going to Egypt. If someone said to us they uh, were traveling through Idaho and and they went from Nampa to Meridian to Boise to Mountain Home, you'd know exactly what they're talking about. They're traveling right down Highway 80. And that's what we're expected to understand by this this passage, that he was traveling right down the major north-south route through which everyone had to go. And as he traveled, he put his little tent up and he built his altar and he made proclamation in the name of the Lord. He was preaching. He was evangelizing. The Old Testament is a missionary book, pure and simple. Describes how God revealed his plan to bring salvation to the earth and then through his people, he began to bring blessing to the world by the proclamation of, of the good news that God loves people. God has done something about the problem that we face, our separation from him. And that was the message that Abram proclaimed. And there are two things that we ought to observe. Number one, God put Abram right in the thick of things, right in the middle of Canaanite society, which is where we ought to be. That's where the Lord and the apostles were. They were right in the thick of things. The Lord didn't parachute in at age 30 and, and die on the cross. He was born in a barn, and he identified with us from the very beginning and uh, just lived right right in the middle of all the squalor and all the moral awfulness of his time and made friends of sinners. He was always criticized for that sort of thing. The religious folk of his day just couldn't understand why he spent his time with sinners. And he explained it one time. He said, well, um, a physician doesn't spend time with the well. He spends time with the sick. We used to sing a song when I was growing up about the doctor who fell into a well and broke his collarbone. And the rejoinder is, why don't the doctors tend the sick and leave the well alone? Because we know that the doctors are supposed to, physicians spend their time with the sick. That's where Jesus was. He ate with publicans. Do you know who publicans are? Those were the Jews that had sold out to the Romans. It would be like uh, someone today who was a communist sympathizer or someone who sold secrets to the communists. And Yet that's where Jesus spent his time, with people like that. Because that's where the need was. And that's where we need to be. Right in the thick of things. Our tendency as Christians is to isolate ourselves, spend all of our time with one another, because that's where we're secure. But that's not where Jesus spent his time. And that's not where the apostles spent their time. And neither must we. We need to be right in the thick of things. We need to be making friends with non-Christians. That's always a good question to ask ourselves. How many friends do I have in the non-Christian world? People that that know that I love them. People I really care about out there. Not just people that I witness to on a kind of hit-and-run basis. But how many friends do I have? People that I'm getting close to. Relationships that I'm cultivating with people out there. And you see, if we're going to do that, it involves some changes in our attitude. Because in the, in the first place, we're going to have to learn to be tolerant of people's sins. Jesus was. He said, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came that the world might be saved. He came to redeem the world, not condemn it. He didn't shake his finger under people's noses because they were adulterers. Or because they drank too much. Or because they smelled up his house with their cigarettes. Didn't matter. He didn't care. Because that wasn't the problem that separated them from God. Jesus said when the spirit of truth has come, he will convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Of sin because they do not believe on me. That's what troubles God is that people don't believe in him. And that's what ought to trouble us. Not that they do things that that we consider to be sin. So we need to learn to accept people as Jesus did and be comfortable with people who sin if we're going to be the friend of sinners. And secondly, I think we need to be natural. I don't know what it is about us Christians, but whenever we start talking about religious things... We even change our tone of voice. And we shout at people. And we can talk about everything under the sun. Talk about sports. We can talk about politics. And we're just normal, ordinary, common people. But when we start talking about spiritual things, we get a kind of a holy whine in our voice. And we're just different. Why? Why can't we just be natural and genuine? And we also need to be transparent. We need to be honest about the fact that we sin too. You know, that's why we have a Savior, because we sin. And we should never be defensive about the fact that we sin. I sin. Don't you sin? I sinned this past week. I told you when I came. One of the things I was going to do to help you realize I was human is sin a lot. <laughs> and i get irritated and harsh with carolyn and i do all sorts i do the very same things that you do we're just men and women and we need to face the fact and be real with people it doesn't turn people off what turns them off is when we act as though we have it all together and we don't need a savior now it is true that our character is important we're going to talk about that in a minute but we just need to face the fact that we are going to fail i was speaking or at the first one time and it, Lady came uh, up after, I was talking about just being real in relationships with non-Christians, and she came up afterward and told me that she'd gotten into a big fuss with her husband, who's a very well-known Christian leader in that area, and so is she. She's a Bible teacher there. And uh, she was really mad, and she was going through the kitchen, slamming cabinet doors, and swearing at the top of her lungs. She was really angry. And as she went by the screen door, there stood her neighbor with a cup of sugar in her hand. The neighbor she'd been witnessing to for the past three or four months. And she just opened the door, invited her in. She said, boy, I'm sorry. I I really got mad at my husband this morning because of some dumb thing he did. And this is what I am. You can see what I am and why I need a Lord. And later led that person to Christ. We don't have to be perfect. We just need to be real and honest and genuine. With people, natural, accepting, loving. Now, the thing that set Abraham apart, or Abram as he is here, was a tent and an altar. He worshiped God instead of the Canaanite gods, and he had a tent, which meant he didn't put his roots down into Canaanite philosophy and psychology and theology. He was different. He was distinctive in his lifestyle. He was like the Lord, separate from sinners. Not spatially, not geographically. He was the Lord was right in the middle of sinful society, but he was different. He was distinctive in his lifestyle, and that's what ought to set us apart. When people look at us as Christians, they shouldn't see us just involved in church activities and busy 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 doing things. That's not going to draw anybody to the Lord. What ought to draw them to the Lord is that we love our wives as men, as no one in the world loves their their wife. And we love our kids, and we spend time with our kids, and we care about them. And we display the fruit of the Spirit. We're loving, and we're kind, and we're patient, and we're gentle, and we have moral courage, and we're faithful. And we care about people. That's what's going to draw people to the Lord. When you, when you bake a casserole for someone in your neighborhood who's sick and take it to them, that's an expression of love that shows you care about them. Or when you go over and help your neighbor work on his car. You're not flying four law booklets over his fence like paper airplanes with going over and getting involved in his life and befriending him and caring about him, if you hear that one of your neighbor's children is sick, just to go over and express concern. Ask if there's something you can do to help. A number of years ago when, one, when Brian was going into surgery to have some surgery done on his shoulder, Carol and I were really apprehensive because they thought it might be cancer. And, and our neighbor, who wasn't even a Christian, came over and he said, I just want you to know that we were really concerned about Brian. And I'll tell you, I'll never forget that guy because he cared very much about something that I cared very much about. And when we demonstrate that kind of love and concern for people, then they're going to listen to us when we talk about our Lord because that's unique. The world's getting colder and colder and more loveless and more loveless. And when they see someone in the neighborhood who really loves, loves their family, faithful to their wife, Loves people in the community, does something in, in a tangible, practical way to meet their needs, and they'll begin to listen. That's that's what ought to distinguish distinguishes. Jesus said, "What do you do more than those in the world?" And we sometimes turn that around. And the thing that makes us distinctive is what we don't do. We don't do this. We don't do that, and we point our finger at people who do, and we miss the point. And what reaches the heart of people is what we do. It's engaging in positive, practical acts of love for those out there and then telling them the basis of your love, where it comes from. Well, as you know, uh, Abram wasn't a perfect man. There was a famine in the land and he went on down into Egypt to live there while the famine was... uh, Famine existed in Canaan, and when he got there, he knew that they would be attracted to Sarah because she was a beautiful woman. She was 65 years old at this uh, period, but a beautiful woman. And so he lied, said she was his sister, which was a half-lie. She was his half-sister. And the Pharaoh took Sarah into his harem, and disease broke out in the family, In Pharaoh's family. And Pharaoh found out what had happened and he took Sarah back to Abram and he said, Get out of here before you destroy us all. So Abram packed up all of his goods and he got out of the land of Egypt. Now, I don't think it was sinful for Abram to go down into Egypt, I don't think he was wrong. To abandon the land of canaan for a period of time because god would have given it back to him i think he was just doing what was necessary to provide for his family at that time and i think that god brought the famine in order to get abram down into egypt so he could be a blessing there but the thing that you that you note as you read through this uh, section is that there was no tent and no altar he just acted like the like the egyptians acted lied Dropped back on his own resources to try to get himself out of a jam, and he left behind a curse. He blighted the land of Egypt, and that's what happens to us. We're not static. We're either going to go out into the world and be a blessing, or we're going to go out into the world and be a curse. If we don't have this distinctive quality about our life that Abraham had when he had a tent and an altar. You know, Jesus said, you're the salt of the, of the earth. And if the salt loses its savor, it's, it's good for nothing but to be trampled underfoot. Now, what he meant is that if we don't act like salt, then the world will despise us. And you know, that's what's happening today. That's why so many of the privileges that churches have enjoyed in the past are being taken away. It, there used to be a time when the world recognized that the church... Was a, was a powerful agent in society it was like salt it arrested the spread of corruption as, as believers went out into the world and, and loved people and made proclamation of the gospel society changed but we're not salty anymore and, and so the world just despises us and they're trampling us underfoot and that's why they're taking away many of the privileges that we've enjoyed in the past our tax-exempt status and other things and let's remember those are privileges they're not rights We don't have the right to demand them. They're privileges that were given to us by, by our government because they saw the impact of the church on society. The way to get them back is not to demand them as rights, but to become salty again. To get back out into society and be what God has called us to be. You see, that's the option we have. We're either going to curse the world or we're going to bless it. Choice is ours. Now, I'd like you to do something. Um, When you teach the Scriptures, you're supposed to make application. And sometimes we think because we have made application in the teaching, we've made application, but we haven't. You haven't applied the Scriptures until you act on it. And so I would like to encourage all of us, myself included, all of us, to start acting on the basis of this truth. If you open up your bulletin, you'll see a little box in the right-hand corner that says response to God's Word with, to, with uh, number one and number two. And on, by number one, I would like for you to write down the name or the initials of one non-Christian that you know Perhaps you don't know them well at all, but you would like to get to know them. And then number two, would you write down some specific steps that you're going to take this week to get to know that person better and to genuinely be a friend to them? Perhaps it's some action that you know you need to take that would seal that relationship. And we're going to take about three minutes and ask you to think that through You may have more than one person that's on your mind right now. If so, put their names down. But be concrete and specific about the action that you'd like to take. And remember, you have all the resources of God to take that action.